welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas indeed. <laughs> we, I don't know if we want to uh, pull back the curtain here. We just had a little, as you as you pointed out uh, off mic, very much in the spirit of the season, yeah. we had a little spat. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, yeah, where I, uh, I grew impatient and I snapped at you. And I feel bad about that. That's okay. Uh, I, in the spirit of the season, David, uh-huh. uh, oh, you know what? Yeah, this, this, this works. Uh, go to hell. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, uh, I don't have time is, uh, <laughs> is the deal here. I don't have time to go to hell. Um, hell is actually coming to us here in the U S uh, gotcha. very shortly. Um, so that'll take care of that. But no, we have a lot of episode to get to. Yes, we do. Um, so, uh, we should probably just, uh, pay some bills right up top. Okay. But let's do it entertainingly so the listener doesn't feel tempted to fast forward through. You know? Okay, hang on now. Let's try to jazz yeah, it up a bit. Let me see if I can do like a, like, uh, like a silly voice or something. That'll, that'll work, right? Uh, I don't know if that'll work for the sponsor. <laughs> That's true, yes. can keep Hey, uh, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode is brought to you by movie. Yeah, they might not like that. Yeah. So, um, okay. Uh, but this episode is indeed brought to you by movie. Now, look, listeners, you already know what this is. It's a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent internet national and classic films it's christmas all right give yourself a little gift it's 5.99 a month yeah there's a new movie introduced every day that means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy and uh, let's see when you use their mobile apps you can download films to watch offline yeah i can tell you one month that it won't be 5.99 what's that which is the first month what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and read the copy? <laughs> Son of a bitch, you're right. Here it is on my phone, right in front of me. Uh, yeah, you can actually try movie free for one month. Uh, if your resolution is to watch more movies, then uh, you can do this one for free. Yeah. Uh, for one month. Uh, which is usually about as long as resolutions last. <laughs> so everything's <laughs> fine. Uh, just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship. That's the key. Slash Battleship to redeem now. Uh, and I want to tell you very quickly about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Uh, they look great. They sound great. We uh, stand by them. Uh, we don't just stand by them. We put them in our ears and use them as God intended. Uh, and we are happy with the results. Uh, they're available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer, use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so go to tweakedaudio.com select what you uh want and what you want to give as gifts uh sure to friends and loved ones uh and remember to use the offer code pretension getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking what's your secret Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. All right. Part three, David. Yeah, home stretch. Home stretch, indeed. 
And I, okay, so we are talking about, now mathematically, David, how is this shaking out? Because this is episode 510. Yes, okay. Uh, Which means, because the episode ends in a zero, and yet is not evenly divisible by the number 50. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we did five episodes for episode 500, and none of them were a profile. That's right. That's right. But because this is, it ends in zero, the number ends in zero. It's not a movie journal or otherwise a supplemental or, 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 or premium or bonus episode. Uh, and it ends in zero. Mm-hmm. The number uh, on your, on your MP3 player, uh, you'll see is five ten ends in zero. Uh, but it's not evenly divisible by 50. If you, div- if you divide 500 by 50, you, uh, you get, uh, uh, 25. Sure. Is that right? <laughs> 500 by 50. Is that <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe uh, it is. I don't know. No, you get 10, right? It's just one, yeah, that's it's right. one yeah, zero yeah. difference. All right. Sorry. 500 divided by 50 is 10, right? Uh, yes. 510 divided by 50 is 10 and then a dot and some other shit. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's why this, you know, because, because, because of that dot other shit. Yeah. Right. This is a profile episode. Absolutely. And it's, as you mentioned, it's the third consecutive, not consecutive profile episode. Right. It's actually not consecutive, uh, but it is the third in a series, the third and final in a series of profiles of composer John Williams. That's right. And we've had the same guest for all of them. Mm-hmm. He is the resident musicologist and music expert uh, here at Battleship Retention, uh, so much so that he, uh, we couldn't even begin to contain uh, his expertise, and so he started his own podcast, uh, the delightful uh, Better Than Battleship Retention uh, podcast, <laughs> Musical Notation. You know what? You nailed it. Like, <laughs> yeah. abs- like I cannot... <laughs> I'm not saying this just because he's in the room. I have emailed him and I've told others uh, this this podcast musical notation. If you like movies, if you like music, if you like movie music, this is the podcast for you. It is marvelous. I love so, it. And so we and have get in, get out. I like that. Too. Yeah, like yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't go on like we do. Yes, uh, we have here our, as I mentioned, a resident musicologist, host of the musical notation podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, West Anthony. Oh, the world we live in is frightful, (laughs) and there's nothing that's delightful, but maybe it's just as well. Go to hell, go to hell, go to hell. I, um, uh, let me, before we start, I just want to say, uh, for those of you, I mean, if you're here for this episode, then uh, you're probably going to be interested in this. Um, recently, just like three weeks ago or something like that, uh, La La Land Records, which is a label that specializes in film scores, they just released a deluxe box set of the John Williams scores for Jurassic Park and The Lost World. It's four CDs. Uh, all the scores have been remastered and expanded, and uh, it's a limited edition. There's only 5,000 of them. So if you go to LaLaLandRecords.com, you can get uh, one of those for yourself. Is it weird that the soundtrack to the movie La La Land is on Interscope Records? Maybe. <laughs> La La Land Records, I don't, they don't usually put out anything new, to the best of my of my, my recollection. They, I guess they I'm usually, thinking this would have been a place to start. Yeah, well... They, but it's not up to them. It's not their fault. But ironically, La La Land released the soundtrack to Christopher Nolan's Interscope. <laughs> yeah. That was a long way to go. Sorry. <laughs> I thought that was a Joe Dante movie. Oh, nice. Um, anyway. Let's get started. <laughs> I think I already said let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, now, uh, for for some setup, the the first episode, which was uh, I, I want to say f- episode four hundred and seventy, I think was that the first one we did seventy, ninety, ten? Yeah, 
um, I'm pretty sure it was 470, was when we did John Williams Part 1. You're still thinking about it. What do we do for 80? I don't know. Oh, okay. We did it. We were going to do it every tw- every two, right? Like every, every other 20? profile. Okay. Because right. yes, yes. Okay. Uh, because yes, you're five hundred. Right, okay. Yes. All right. Whew. I almost lost it again. <laughs> the listeners almost got a taste of uh, what happened off mic. Um, Four hundred and seventy. Uh, we talked about the first phase of John Williams' career that covered the the years of of what? Uh, oh, it would have been what. Uh, uh, from the beginning to I think 1980. That sounds okay. right. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, episode two was then the 80s and up to, to mid 90s. Yeah. So now we're starting in the late 90s, um, and we've got uh, we've got two off the bat from 1999, which yeah. as we uh, uh, as we know is one of the great movie years of all time. But neither of these movies tends to make those lists. That's true, which is unfortunately, uh, which is unfortunate because one of them is quite good. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about the one I've never seen, but the music oh, is oh, good. Okay. Yes, it uh, is. But we'll get to the good one later. We're starting. Uh, it's it's in the it's in the air it's in the zeitgeist because sure. of uh, Rouge One a Star Wars story <laughs> thing I've seen so many people is that like it? tweeting like just accidentally oh in fact, okay in fact while we were recording our um, last episode which was about the non Christmas Christmas movies mm-hmm. our friend Frank uh, Frank uh, feel my wrath McGrath yeah. Uh, he clearly went to one of those like 10 p.m. screenings or whatever, uh, or 9 p.m. screenings, and texted mm-hmm. me as soon as he got out. Rouge one is so fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so because of so Rouge one is uh, uh, Star Wars is in the air. So let's start with 1999s, and now I'm, we're going to play the clip before we talk. Yes. Right? We're starting with uh, 1999s Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace.
Okay, now this was uh, an incredibly anticipated piece of music for an incredibly anticipated movie. They released this as a single, which uh, yeah. doesn't happen very often with uh, orchestral music at all, much less orchestral film music. They did release a, a single of the, the Batman theme back in 1989, but since then, uh, uh, wasn't, I, I can't recall much of anything, but this, this happened. They released it as a CD single. I bought one. It was uh, The video was, I think, the only orchestral music video ever to appear on uh, total request live for it was on there for like <laughs> like a dozen weeks as I, re- I i never watched the show it was just something that i read because i'd kind of fallen out of the mtv demographic by then and i wasn't paying attention but um yeah it was just it was huge and and it's it's such a great piece of music because you have that driving ostinato and and it's that you have the, the the choir that's like booming out full force and it ends up sort of being uh, an appetizer for a movie that was less than satisfying, which was kind of unfortunate. <laughs> but And also, it was sort of like one of the only two bits of music from The Phantom Menace that really stand out for me. Anakin's theme, I thought, was was very good, particularly the way it sort of interpolates the, the Darth Vader theme. Um, but other than that, that, that was kind of the problem that I had with Williams's music for the, the prequel trilogy in general was that there was only like a couple of good themes and then everything else just kind of felt like filler. But this was a really good piece of music and it just kind of blasted out at you. And um, unfortunately, then the movie came out. <laughs> and so everything around the, the movie was kind of diminished by the movie itself because it's just, it didn't really add up quite uh, to, to the sum of its parts. But the piece of music, I mean, it was just, it was such a great, a great anticipatory taste of what was gonna what was gonna happen or what we was hoping was gonna happen. It uh, it it really satisfied a lot of people uh, up to a point. With the point was that the movie's release. So you know, you still have the good music at least. I have a couple of questions for you. Number one, when I hear this piece of music, because yeah, I mean, it was my friends and I. It's not like we were like rolling down the street listening to it, but like we were all aware of it. And like when we heard that, we we're like. Holy shit, this movie's going to be amazing. Uh, but when I, you know, listen to the the Star Wars score of the first three films, when I listen to the score of the prequels, when I listen to the score of The Force Awakens, um, this track seems kind of like an outlier. It do, like the use of like the the chorus um, does make it a little bit different in a language that no one speaks, right? Is it? I don't even know. My understanding know is that it's like based on Sanskrit, which is a dead oh, written wow. language that no one is entirely sure how to pronounce anyway. So it's that's that was my understanding is that that the 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 lyrics or whatever are uh, based on sort of uh, speculation on how Sanskrit might be pronounced. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, <laughs> that, so no one knows. That's what, very in depth. Like there's not, not someone who speaks you know Hungarian or whatever out there who knows what they're saying in in this track. Right. I guess I just assumed it was gibberish, <laughs> which I guess it kind of is. Yeah, it essentially is. Um, but like, it's. Do you, I mean? Do you know what I mean? Like, when I think of it, it does. It definitely seems to just like, like you said, it, it shouts out at you, um, and it's very good. But is it? Is it good in a? This is going to sound weird. Is it good in a Star Wars way? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think the, I think what's throwing you off is that the 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 rest of the movie around it is kind of subpar. Maybe. I mean, that's that's what it is. If if the prequel trilogy had lived up to its expectations, then that that piece of music wouldn't seem quite so out of place. I guess that's I, I suppose that's true. And then that there is that scene that like 
when people if people talk favorably about the phantom menace that's the scene they talk about um even though we have no connection to that villain at all um but yeah i'm sure like oh right what's the name of the track uh duel of the fates okay um but yeah and and i remember for myself when i saw the film um there was an anticipatory quality to that track because when i had heard of it i thought anything that this musical track is going to go to is going to be pretty awesome and when it finally arrived it was like well this is pretty awesome i wanted to be more invested than i am but right, it's but, I mean, yeah. yeah but mission accomplished for the most part uh before we move on the thing i want to uh point out um that always cracks me up about the phantom menace soundtrack okay is that the the soundtrack album came out before the movie was released and this would never happen now in like the internet age but like one of the tracks is named Qui-Gon's Noble End and then another track is named Qui-Gon's Funeral like oh wow the fact that Qui-Gon Jinn dies in the movie was <laughs> openly available uh, to anyone because it was on the back of the CD that you could pick up at Best Buy like two weeks before the movie came out. Wow, I didn't. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> yeah, you, it, yeah, it's a it's a funny bit of. Were bit you of working trivia. at Best Buy at the time? Was I? I might have been. Okay. Um, when did it come out? Uh, what when? What part of ninety nine did it come May, out? May. May. Yeah. That might have. Yeah. No, I think I started when the school year ended. So I think I started working there in like June of of 99. So, uh, I just missed it. I'm sure there were still copies in the racks, uh, at the time. No, limited edition. (laughs) Just, they print, it's like twilight time. They did 5,000 or is it 3,000? Twilight Uh, time does. It's not enough. Not enough. That's true. All right, let's move on to the movie that Tyler claims is good that I've never seen from 1999. (laughs) (laughs) What have I done today? Um, <laughs> Nothing. No, it is. It is a very good movie. It's. I don't know if I'd say it's. I'd say it's a great movie. In a year that makes it look okay. not memorable. So what we're talking about when we're about to hear some music from is Angela's Ashes.
This is a lovely piece of music for a movie that is um, no fun. It is, I, I, I mean, Angela's Ashes, I mean, Alan Parker has had a very interesting career. I mean, he did only one more film after this, and then he said, no, screw it, i got to get out of this. And then he retired. Um, but And this movie may be one of the reasons why, because unfortunately his, his career is one where he's a guy who has had more critical acclaim than financial success. And this movie is definitely an example of that, because I think they made it for like $25 million, which isn't even that much, and it didn't even make half of that. And it's easy to see why when you look at the movie, because although, yes, it's a, it's a quality picture, and there's lots of good stuff in it, but um, uh, holy smokes, this film is uh, like one of the most depressing cinematic experiences I've ever endured. And I've seen Transformers movies. I mean, like, a baby dies in the. Ba- That's how the movie starts. It starts with a dead baby. Okay. By the end of the half hour, three children are dead. My stars and garters. What joys and delights await you? It's, it's just so unremittingly bleak. I mean, there's just like a couple of moments of levity here and there, but overall, I was just like, you know, then it starts in America and the family, you know, they go back to Ireland and everything in Ireland is terrible. And just one awful thing happens after another. The, the main character grows into adolescence and only he finds a girl and they have sex and then she dies of consumption. It's just that happens. All this stuff happens. It's, it's ghastly. I, I don't. I don't know. I I I I hesitate to recommend this movie to anybody, <laughs> but the John Williams score is it's it's uh, lovely and and haunting and and dramatic and and filled with tragedy and woe. So and it's you- it's so rare and nice to hear to hear a score that he does for somebody outside of his you know usual George Lucas Steven Spielberg Oliver Stone, um, and I think he finds some. I don't know. I was going to say find some new notes to play and I wasn't trying to speak musically. Um, I think he, uh, this is a track that you can hear John Williams in there, but it's not the standard John Williams that you're familiar with. And I, I really, really loved it. And I think it captures the <laughs> on it. You know what? Honestly, now that I think about it, cause I haven't seen the film in a while. Um, I wonder if the beauty of the score for me offset some of the bleak tone suggesting perhaps that like yes this is horrible and life can be terrible sometimes but there is like an intrinsic value and an intrinsic beauty to the events that are happening well and also i mean i think it's meant to convey the the sort of the notion of of hope however faint because the whole idea is that the main character is just longing to get the hell out of ireland and go back to the united states which is what happens in the end because you know it's not a big spoiler it's based on a true story supposedly um so, and there's always that sort of being that, that carrot being dangled out at you yeah. it's, it's to, towards the end. So, you know, you're sort of moving towards that. And I think that's the thing that everything sort of leads up to. And that's why the score sort of reflects that, that there's as bad as everything is, he is pointing out that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And, uh, uh ironically enough, it's here. Yeah, it's. It's a really because uh, as I listened to this track, it inspired me to listen to a number of the other ones from this uh, film, and it's it's a beautiful score all around. Yeah, it is. And Alan Parker never worked with a composer of this caliber before. Mm-hmm. He never did, which is kind of odd. Hmm. But uh, and again, as, as a sort of varied career, and also uh, he's a guy who has done more musicals than pretty much any modern director working today. 
because that's the thing. Almost half of his filmography is musicals. Mm-hmm. So his first film was Bugsy Malone. It had songs by Paul Williams. Uh, and then there was Fame, which had uh, music okay. and, and songs by, by Michael Gore, who was Leslie Gore's brother. If you remember Leslie Gore did uh, It's My Party. And, oh, right. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, then there was the adaptation of Pink Floyd The Wall, which is based on Pink Floyd's The Wall. So you have all that music. Uh, and then Vita. Yeah, Avita. When you had uh, that that hack, Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, uh, Midnight then, Express, obviously. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing too. There, there was, there was, he, yeah. That's, the, but that's another interesting thing about his career is that he had a couple of films that weren't musicals, but they had scores by people who came out of popular music. As Giorgio Moroder was a guy who was basically doing you know, like right. you know, disco and electronic dance music in the late seventies, and he did the score for for Midnight Express. And then in eighty four, uh, Alan Parker did Birdie, which had a score by Peter Gabriel. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the closest thing he, he came to, you know, well-known uh, traditional orchestral film composers, he did a, a couple of films with uh, Trevor Jones, uh, Mississippi Burning was one of them, and he had uh, Randy Edelman for uh, Come See the Paradise, but, I mean, and, but as good as those guys are, nobody he worked with was a, of the caliber of John Williams. That, this was his one and only opportunity to work with somebody like that, and he definitely got his money's worth. Yeah. Because it's easily, you know, it's it's a fantastic score. Got nominated for an Oscar, I believe. Just like just about everything else the guy's done. Um, but then that was it. <laughs> yeah, Alan Parker did one more movie, and that one was like a that one bombed terribly. Which Roger, one was that? The Life, the Life of, of David, David Gale. Gale. Yeah, that movie. Ebert awful. gave it no stars. <laughs> yeah. After that, it was like no, he, he bailed. Um, yeah, rightfully we, so. That is a terrible movie. We need to move on, but I do have a question because you recently. This is a plug for the podcast or for the website. You recently reviewed Alan Parker's The Commitments. Uh, right for right. for our website. I know I've never seen the commitments. I know it's a music movie, but is it like a John Carney movie? Is it structured like a musical? Does no. it have full numbers? No, there there are there's a few numbers that come close to being complete. There's a couple of complete numbers actually, and then there's there's some things where there's like you know rehearsals and parts of performances and performances that are interrupted by you know electrocutions. Um, <laughs> But that's but it's not a musical okay. per se. Not in not in the manner that you're thinking, where it's like, hey, everybody, I got an idea, and then somebody well, like, strikes a piano chord and everybody starts <laughs> like singing. Sing Street from this year is a movie that it's on. In one hand, it's not like people break out into song and break the you know the rules of the world or whatever but like there, a musical. There but are, there are full songs in Sing yeah. Street. It is structured like a musical. But and also that movie, I think I I, I loved Sing Street, but I, I, Sing Street. I think it's more that I consider more of a fantasy. Then, okay. Because the commitments is definitely rooted in reality, whereas Sing Street, I mean, there are definitely realistic elements, but it's like, but then there are a couple of sequences where obviously there's like a, you know, fantasy musical yeah. numbers, but then also, okay, um, this is the question nobody can ever answer for me. It's when, because people say, no, it's not a fantasy. It's re- okay. Well, where does he get the money to record the demos? Right. Well, where do they record the demos? Yeah. Where, where are these songs being recorded? It's a fantasy, goddammit. Yeah, damn it, it kind of has that know, sort of and, you know, glee type see, of thing. To the it. problem is everybody is it's thinking that I'm saying uh, you know, fantasy like I'm putting it down, but I'm not. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about the movie is that it's a fantasy about you know, music just you know, setting you free. Uh, that's, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> so it, all right, you should well, all see that movie. Now, it's not uh, a Sing Street uh, podcast. Before we move on okay. to like the next specific track, uh, I want to address something. I'm reluctant to address something because I worry it might frame everything we talk about from here on uh now west uh i don't think we ever said this on air but um as we were talking about this our own little uh, trilogy here um i believe you had expressed not necessarily concern but uh i don't know i'll, I'll use the word concern because i can't think of another one but like the idea that talking about john williams from i believe 2000 on 
it would be a bit more difficult or not quite as exciting for you because you feel as though for the last several years, he hasn't really done anything that amazing. Um, what, uh, do you, and I know that obviously like we tried to pick tracks that are more notable. Um, but do you have any ideas as to why did he just like, do you think he just kind of settled into his thing and, and didn't, want to challenge himself or that he just got too locked in with Spielberg or I don't know. What do you think? Well, it could be part of it. It could partly be the process of just uh, aging because I mean, the guy's in his eighties by now and uh, you know, like uh, what did he just do? The BFG, the the Spielberg mm. film that I yeah. just I saw recently, and there again, that's it's a good score, but I didn't hear anything really super inspiring. And I, that's things that I think one of the things that I'm seeing with Spielberg's career also lately is that I don't feel him pushing himself. I, I don't feel any see anything super inspired. Although, like the funny thing is that the the period that we're getting into here. Spielberg was on fucking fire. Mm-hmm. You know, there was from, from the late nineties into the only thing that stopped him, his momentum was that, that Indiana Jones and the thing with the people and the stuff. Yeah. Uh, but up until then, <laughs> I mean, it's like the, the first half of the two thousands, there was just a, an incredible run of movies. Well, case in point, let's move on to our, our next movie. Uh, I think a, underappreciated at the time Spielberg movie that I think has since um, come to be uh, closer to the level of respect it deserves. I though, think. though to bring up Roger Ebert again, I believe this was his favorite movie of that year. Good for Roger Ebert. Uh, we're talking about 2001's AI, Artificial Intelligence. Thank you. 
yeah, I don't know how people didn't appreciate this movie more. And the funny thing is, I mean, I love the movie from the get-go. And I saw when it came out at the Chinese theater. And oddly, this is, this is a weird thing, by the way, is that uh, there were two movies that year where the movie ended, the lights came up, and some asshole jerk off in the audience loudly says something along the lines of, well, what was that all about? Yep. The other one being Mulholland Drive. Um, <laughs> it was, I, I, I never forgot that. And it's like, you know, well, in both cases, you should be run over by a streetcar. God damn it. <laughs> what, what is wrong with you? It's like, you know if you don't know what you're walking into, then, you know, maybe that's one thing. I mean, if you, particularly with the David Lynch movie, you, you should know right off the bat, you're right. not going to get anything you're expecting unless you're expecting weirdness do you think he had only seen the straight story <laughs> maybe i don't know uh, but, uh, but uh, the thing is even if i agreed with that person don't do that yeah. don't like be yeah. shitty to other people's good times and uh, the only I thing that. i can it happened was- for me a castaway castaway i got that too yeah. a guy said what kind of ending was that uh, right? yeah, I, I heard really? I, I got that's two hours i'm not getting back on one of those kind of oh things that oh, was probably man. clever the first time someone said it but now everyone says it and <laughs> that was uh, and it just happened sorry it just happened last year with the assassin which was that actually a press screening of all things oh, uh, and the person behind me went uh as soon as the movie over went movie was over went you gotta be kidding me oh, <laughs> yeah i remember uh waiting to get into magnolia with my girlfriend and we're standing outside the theater and they're gonna they're waiting the, the movie's over and people are coming out and they're waiting to clean it up and this woman comes out and just says to us point blank you know get your money back it's like what we haven't even seen the movie yet and you're ruining it. Fuck you. Yeah. And it was like one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah. So I don't know what the hell she's on about. And AI, I think the only thing I can think of is that, you know, maybe people who were, you know, walking in there expecting something very uh, Kubrickian got something more Spielbergian for their taste. And people who were expecting something more Spielbergian got the opposite. Or maybe some people were kind of put off or confused by, by the ending. I have to say, even, even I, as much as I loved the movie, I didn't get until later it was pointed out to me that because I thought they were aliens. I didn't realize that they were like super hyper mega advanced uh, robots. I didn't realize that. And I think I assumed that they were aliens as well, but it didn't stop me from enjoying it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like either way. Well, the thing either way, you can understand them wanting to be curious about a dead civilization, a.k.a. us. But knowing that they are mecha actually makes it more profound and more poignant because you know whereas aliens they're not from here and it's like oh what happened what happened to these people let's dig them up and find out whereas with the advanced mecha it's like well how did we get here yeah let's dig them up and find out so that's like really fantastic and uh and the funny thing you know people go on saying that oh that have said that you know the ending was just like you know spielberg just you know running riot over Stanley Kubrick's uh, uh, original ideas. But according to Spielberg, that was Kubrick's idea. Yeah. So, um, and it's just, it's a wildly underrated movie. And it's also one of the most like bleak and horrifying movies <laughs> I've ever seen. The music for that sequence that, that, that we just played, is for the sequence where, uh, his, you know, the, the kid, you know, David's mother just abandons him in, in the wilderness. And I mean, it's, it's just, horrifying mm-hmm. you know anybody who's any had had any kind of uh you know abandonment issues this it's this this scene isn't going to help you at all and of course also if you thought that i wasn't going to pick the piece of music that most reminds me of philip glass think again <laughs> i was i was as i listened to it i thought like hmm this is interesting but it, i it's obviously i wouldn't say it's a ripoff but there's a there's a uh what can what can only be described as like an ordered chaos to it i mean it just um it's a kid who it is slowly 
dawning on him what has just happened and is in a panic, but he's also a robot, so the panic is only ever going to go so far. Um, by the way, I should say, this was not Roger Ebert's favorite movie uh, of that year. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I got mixed up. Uh, I forgot... I forgot the order, uh, the year order. I'm thinking of a 2002 movie that we'll be talking about. Oh, okay. But yeah, okay. But yeah do, it's, David, do you like AI? I love you, it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, it's, there's so much about that movie that is just incredibly thought provoking and just the, the nature of, you know, our, our relationship with technology and questions about the validity of, of unrequited love, whether or not such a thing exists and the, the, the dangers of unrequited love. If you know, I mean, cause there's a danger, there's a downside to everything. If you think about it. Um, and it just, and also very forward thinking in its view of, uh, uh, our bleak future as a civilization on this planet. Uh, it's, I think that it also will be shown to be kind of somewhat ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, almost as much, as uh, as Spielberg's next movie. Well, we're uh, gonna we're not <laughs> we're not going straight to Spielberg. We're going back to George Lucas. Oh here, yes. Uh, for, but I'm assuming this is the 2002 movie you were talking it about. It is. Yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> uh, we're talking next about 2002's Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones.
Now, here again is like a really lovely piece of music that is better than pretty much everything that's in the movie. I mean, again, the, the, all these these Star Wars prequel movies have some some good things in them. I do think that they get better as they go along, but there again, I just feel like this is just a very lovely um, sort of sweeping romantic uh, love theme with a sort of undertone of of tragedy because of course i mean we all technically we all know what's coming <laughs> so uh-huh. so you you have to sort of acknowledge that that layer of tragedy and i think uh, john williams does that very capably so it, it's just uh, another lovely theme and then again there's just a whole lot of score in the movie that i feel is just sort of just a, a layer of sound on whatever's going on in, in any given scene yeah, they, this music gives so much more weight to the romance that it is underscoring than the romance actually has. It's kind of frightening how, <laughs> if you know how much better Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen are as actors, mm. to see them right. together in this movie where there is like there is no chemistry. Yeah, their their dialogue is cheesy as hell, and I, I mean I understand to a certain extent that George Lucas is being inspired by sort of, you know, B movies and pulpy, you know, science fiction stories, stuff like that. Yeah. I, I get it that you want the dialogue to be kind of cheesy and pulpy, but I think there's, you can only go so far with that. And then you teeter over the brink and you, everything just sounds stupid. Well, you know, the soundtrack album came out two weeks before the movie <laughs> and includes a track titled Anakin hates sand. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good oh, well, we're already moving on? <laughs> yeah, I All think right, so. Good. All right, so let's move on to, I don't know, is this the 2002 movie you were talking about? Who's it's, to say? Uh, it's one of two Steven Spielberg 2002 <laughs> films. Uh, we're starting with Minority Report.
And this is what I mean when I say that Spielberg was just on fire in this particular point in his career. This is one of the best science fiction movies ever made. And again, and again, even more than AI, this movie was so prescient and so forward thinking. And I know that's because Spielberg got a bunch of tech guys and sciencey dudes and got them into a room and said, uh, tell me, what's the future going to be like? And they said, oh, it's going to be this shitty. And so far, he's, they, 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 the movie is dead on. Uh, you know, we're heading toward driverless cars. There are driverless cars all over this movie. Uh, we are already of course. In, Time Cop got there first. <laughs> Time Cop has started this car as well before Minority Report. We're we're already in an era of targeted advertising, mm-hmm. relentless targeted advertising that is everywhere that we cannot fucking get away from. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's all over the place, and the whole notion of you know technology, uh, you know, being your friend when in fact it's it's anything but. I mean, I remember you know when I, I wrote a review for that movie back when it came out a million years ago, and I was pointing out how just even even back then, uh, having it, was, it reminded me of this, this experience that I had been having with my local ATM, where you know ATMs they're just stupid you know boxes that give you money, but. This this particular ATM, it would the, the screen would say, "Hi, how can I help you today?" It's like well, you're a box. Just knock it off with that shit, you know. And it would give you the money. It's like, "Hey, can I do anything else for you?" You can shut up. What are you, it's like, this this whole forced phony folksiness that's attempting to humanize a machine so that you will uh, presumably want to give it more of your business. And it's like, if you have half a brain in your head, you're going to see through all of this shit. And now and also, it's, the it's everywhere. I, the reason I do business with machines is so I don't have to talk to people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't need it to try and pretend. I don't ever uh, want to have to go into a bank again. And it's like, you're, you're just making it worse. Can I? Stupid box. Uh, I want to say, uh, I know I want to get Tyler's thoughts on the, the music itself, but Minority Report, I actually, I rewatched it earlier this year. I don't think it's all that great, I have to say. Well, you're I, wrong. I see, and I, I understand it's, uh, it has some great, uh, fantastic little set pieces with the little, like, spider camera mm-hmm. things. Those are awesome. And, and the, that's the, the and scene the that this fiction, music is from. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, and the science fiction type stuff is great, but I feel like it's sort of detective noir like genre uh mystery elements are kind of formulaic and it and it seems kind of uh lame and i don't like colin farrell's character very much he's he's i don't I mean i don't like him as you're a not person. supposed I, to like his character no but but then but then the fact that he like spoiler alert for minority report that he's the one who ends up realizing you know he's like the bad guy he's the antagonist the whole time until he's the one who ends up realizing this was a, a setup you know um that feels like a screenplay trick more than actual maybe uh, you're character. Just, maybe, maybe you're just too reminded by of, uh, of LA confidential. Is that what it is? Cause, <laughs> maybe. Cause it's, it is almost the exact same thing yeah, that happens in that movie is. with it. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah, a character who is not entirely likable and then he sort of comes around and he's, the audience is thinking, Oh, well, I guess maybe he is on our side and then blammo. Yeah. And, it's, <laughs> and at the hands of an old geezer, no less. Yeah. <laughs> Both times. That, so, that is very true. But, but uh, yeah, see, yeah. the thing is, okay. Yeah. I, I understand. Okay, but unfortunately, you can't. You're never going to get me on board because a I love noir, and, uh-huh. and nothing is ever going to pry me away from it. But then also the fact that you have this noir plot in this futuristic setting 
which I, I think I, the juxtaposition of that just fascinates me. And the whole idea of having this this Hitchcock noir quality where Spielberg was draining the color out of the movie because he knew he couldn't get away with making a black and white movie twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so he just drained as much color as he could out of the palette of the film. So you have this this great noir Hitchcockian uh, uh, element to the, to the whole story. And I just love that. I love it. <laughs> and th- so, yeah, if, if the, the noir stuff seems kind of uh, forced or, or, you know, derivative to you. Yeah, well, it is. Most <laughs> noir that you it's coming out today is going to be derivative of noir from the past where it originated. But th- that's not going to stop me from enjoying it. And again, it just and all the, the, the futuristic elements that are so prescient, it just makes the movie better and better every time I see it. And there's something that I like about it. There, there's an element that I, that always bothered me, which is that they sort of restate the twist twice. Like when they explain it at the end, they explain it in kind of an, a, a roundabout way, but you get it. And then you just have a character completely confess shortly thereafter. And it's like, okay, well that, wasn't super necessary, but I guess I understand why you did it. Um, but what I like about it from a sci-fi and noir standpoint is the idea that in what could be seen as like an idealized society, that that's where a noir is taking place. And so in that way, it's sort of like LA confidential, which in the film they call like, Oh, it's the city of the future where like, Uh, you know, it's, it's sunshine all the time. Everything's great. Oh wait, no, everything is still shitty. Um, and this piece of music, I it's, it's, uh, I think it's just called uh, spiders. With a Y. With a Y, because it's the future. Um, and, uh, and we can't spell too good in the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so um, there's a there's a definite for a creepiness to this piece of music, as there should be. That yeah. part is very creepy. These little things like hunting you down no matter what and, where you are and that's another thing that's prescient about the movie it just i mean not only the spiders but the whole notion of pre-crime in general is just you know just invading everybody's privacy and just just grabbing people for you know the flimsiest of reasons and putting them away which is again this is, this is all stuff that's that's happening and probably will be happening even more uh it, yeah. it's it's amazing to me. Just the, the 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 more time goes by, the more this movie just feels like you know, it, it was just like a giant cinematic Cassandra, just warning us of everything that we're now dealing with. And again, going back to the noir, there's another kind of derivative element is is um, they I, I keep Peter. What was the the actor's name in the movie? Was the, the the weird guy who was in Fargo and and Armageddon, oh. the guy with the accent, oh, um, Peter Stormare, Peter Peter Stormare as as the creepy doctor, which just which he also played Satan in Constantine. I think most okay. people know him first and foremost as <laughs> Satan from Constantine. But, it, but Peter Stormare's turn as as the creepy doctor, the creepy surgeon that that also was like a callback to another great film noir called Dark Passage, mm-hmm. which you might have seen huh. with uh, Delmer Davis directed with uh, with Bogey and, and Bacall, where there's another like he's a creepy. And movie is it's a creepy plastic surgeon and it just it, all this these callbacks to film noir and hitchcock that's that's stuff that i love so i i will you'll you'll never get me to say that this, this movie is substandard in any way i'm kind <laughs> of i'm a by the way real quick i am a sucker this is this is something i didn't realize back when we did a our thing of like 
I forget what we titled it, but like little things that like work for us. They oh, push yeah, a yeah. very specific button. Yeah. And the creepy doctor, not like sexually creepy and not mad scientist. I mean the creepy doctor that you have to go to uh-huh. because, because you have no other choice. I'm a big fan of that character. Uh, let's move on. Wait, was this Roger Ebert's favorite movie of, of 2002? Yeah. Um, as well as so, uh, major snub for our next one. Then, uh, we're sticking in 2002. We're sticking with, uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, a movie that I think is better than Minority Report. It's Catch Me If You Can. This is another great movie, and and just about 
just that he did two great movies like this in one year. And that isn't even the first time he's going to do that yeah. <laughs> in this decade. It just, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. What a, what a, what a role this guy was on. And it's, it's a beautiful sort of colorful movie. Uh, it's got great performances by Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, but now I wanted to ask you, Tyler. Yes. Because you were the one who picked this piece of music mm-hmm. and I was wondering why. Well, I wanted to stay away from the, the opening credits music. That's what everybody knows uh, with Catch Me If You Can. And the whole score is great. And what I and given how we started this, uh, this series about John Williams, I did not associate him with jazz. Uh, I didn't know that's where he started. Okay. And... So when I first heard this score, I thought like, oh my gosh, this is, that's, I think look that's branching out. I absolutely had the same reaction back in 2002, seeing this movie with my, with my family, because by this point, especially for people our age, John Williams was Star Wars and, you know, Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and so this is not what we knew of him. Uh, yeah. and it, I, I remember finding it incredibly impressive. Uh, and it felt like a departure to me as well at the time. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm now smarter, yeah. but, it's, but it just has to do with like when we came of age as yeah. movie fans, right. what we associate. And for those of you listening, if, if you're not, if you don't really fully understand this issue, go back to this first, the first John Williams episode and uh, I'll, I'll lay everything out for you. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it was a departure for what he was doing at in our, time, in our yeah. lifetimes, you know? Um, and, uh, and so it's kind of neat that he, saw you know he sees this film and he says like oh i think i know exactly how this needs to be done and returned back to his roots for it and so with this piece of music i wanted it to be um you know a a jazzier bit but also one that still in in fits the tone of the scene as opposed to the the opening credits, which sets a tone, yeah, but not some of the, you know, there's, there's, there are deeper emotional beats than that opening credits would have you believe. And I think this incorporates both. There's a jazzy quality to it and a darker quality. Yeah. I was, as, well, what made me happy about it is that in a way that track is kind of bringing this whole thing full circle. Mm-hmm. It basically brings us back kind of to where we started. Um, Notes, uh, because I never have anything to say about the actual music, but notes on the movie itself. This was, uh, po- you know, this is five years after Titanic. And I remember as a film fan being uh, really into Leonardo DiCaprio's roles that he would choose after Titanic. He was yeah. at a big part in Celebrity, and then he was in The Beach. He was, like, doing weird stuff. But this was the moment where I realized, oh, not only does he have decent taste, he this guy can actually act. You well, know, and, and, and I feel like... Gangs of New York. Yeah. That was um, in the same year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he's that great. Thanks in New York. Right. Um, I, he's well. You know what? See, everybody just pales in comparison to Daniel Day Lewis. Maybe, like, that's, that, that's, maybe why. that's what it is. Especially I, Cameron Diaz. Uh, I kind of feel like we went through a similar thing over the past few years with both Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, who mm-hmm. came off of, of Twilight and could have continued doing, uh, you know, movies that would have um, appealed to the. Uh, small but dedicated fan base or large but dedicated fan base they had from those movies they intentionally uh chose weirder <laughs> weirder roles and have both become better actors because of it Kristen Stewart now is one of the few actors who um exists as a reason to see a movie for me um Robert Pattinson hasn't quite gotten there but uh his performance in in the rover from a couple of years ago oh, is, yeah. is is fantastic and did you guy did, Pierce right that's uh yeah, yeah. okay yeah I saw that one uh, I blanked out on the name something yeah I can't remember his last name yeah that was a really good movie and he was good in I thought he was good in Cosmopolis I thought he was great in Cosmopolis I still haven't seen that yeah it's I think honestly if you saw Cosmopolis I think he would become what Kristen Stewart is for you just like his 
it's almost like, oh, he chose to be in this movie. That immediately makes me curious about the film because if he's choosing to be in right, Cosmopolis yeah. and the Rover, then like, all right, I guess he finds something interesting in, in these films. Um, all right, we should we should move on. Okay, um, David Michaud is the director's name uh, of of the Rover. Um, he 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 did. Uh, he's the Australian director who did Animal Kingdom. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I love that movie too. Yeah, me too. Uh, I haven't watched the series. It's based on uh, that's based on it yet. There's a series. Yeah, there's a series with uh, Ellen Barkin. That's right. No. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, let's move on Hold to on. Uh, jumping ahead two years. John Williams did nothing of note in 2003. Uh, jumping ahead two years uh, to uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Okay, now here again, I'm going to throw this to you because uh, okay. you, you picked this. And also, you know, I just for the record, I've seen every Harry Potter movie once and then I've never seen them again. Okay. Now, I liked them. It's just that I'm not like super wacky about Harry Potter the way some people are. And, you know, that's not I'm not trying to put it down or anything like that. But it, it just wasn't, you know, for me. I liked all the movies, but I've just never seen them all more than once. I was really, though, I was really intrigued by by your choice though I, I really liked this piece of music because it's again it's something that you don't hear john williams going to yeah. very much but probably because he's not really done a lot of medieval movies and if maybe he's never done any that i know of that that was the big thing is that um you know it would be obvious to play the harry potter theme which is marvelous like yeah. i can't i've you know, said that many times uh you know well, they play it all over the place at that theme park don't they i haven't been yet uh, they play that, but they play like a lot of the music from, from all of the movies. And it really, it's wonderful. I love it so much. Um, but, uh, yeah, but, and there's such a, like a, a delightful, like playful, 
quality to the to the theme, but I didn't want to play that because people were already familiar with it. Um, and I wanted something from Prisoner of Azkaban because I forget he does the whole score to that. Like I know that I knew the first two, but right. the third one I had forgotten because when I think of certain bits of music, like the the music that happens during the uh, the midnight bus ride or whatever that is, mm-hmm. what it is, uh, where it's like it's again a little bit jazzy. And so it's like, okay, that's, that doesn't feel, it didn't feel like him at the time, but I wanted to pick this because he does incorporate in this movie, a second theme. And it is the theme of, uh, something wicked this way comes like it, it introduces it at the beginning with a, uh, a Hogwarts choir singing it. And then there's, there's this little, you know, it's a little like five second bit that will that will show up various times throughout the the film. And I wanted to pick this because it sounds medieval and, um, and incorporates that second theme. It's, I, there's a theme called something wicked this way comes. Um, I don't think it's called that, but what they did is they took, um, that bit from Macbeth and put it to music. Okay. And so for a second, I thought you were talking about the Disney movie. (laughs) Oh no, sorry. (laughs) Um, and yeah, it's uh, I. Yeah, I remember it was in the it was in the trailer for very prominently. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and so um, and as tends to happen, as I was listening through uh, the the score, trying to find out, like, uh, trying to fig- uh, figure out like which track I would play, and finally settled on this one. And then I listened to it a couple of times. I'm like, well, I guess I'm watching Harry Potter and the prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> so I started watching it uh, shortly thereafter, um, neglecting my work duties. But, uh, but yeah, it's a wonderful score and, uh, and a really nice secondary theme. So before we move on, I've been thinking about prisoner of Azkaban this week because remember how two Harry Potter movies came out and people were like, Hey, we like these Harry Potter movies, right? Yeah. And then Prisoner of Azkaban came out, and it was so good that kind of people retroactively went, "Those first two movies were just okay," right? Yeah, I kind of feel I f- I'm already sensing not to the same extent, but I'm already sensing that for the Force Awakens yep. is becoming less well loved because Rogue One is so good. Like the Force Awakens is a very good movie; it's a lot, a lot of fun. It's a solid time at the movies, but uh, Rogue One is so legitimately good that I'm yeah. already getting this feeling that people are sort of revising, not to the point where they're saying I didn't don't like Force Awakens, but are revising their opinions of Force Awakens a little bit. Well, I didn't love Force Awakens to begin with. Uh, I, mean, I liked it, but I mean, it's it's a remake. That yeah, is don't, don't kid yourselves. That is definitely uh, the vibe that I've been getting online. Mm-hmm. But what I think in both cases, what allows Prisoner of Azkaban to be so good and what allows Rogue One to be so good is that you have these earlier movies setting a new stage, you know, and with Force Awakens remake, though it may be, mm-hmm. um, it sort of needed to reestablish this new phase of Star Wars that Rogue One then picks up uh and, yeah, and it allows rogue one to do that yeah but with azkaban you also have a much better director there is that as well yes uh and i think well yeah i think the difference is that alfonso Cuaron brought so much um personality and there's so, so much about yeah. uh, prisoner of azkaban that's distinct whereas rogue one not the gareth edwards didn't bring personality but rogue one is a very conventionally made film mm-hmm. it just is conventionally made at a way higher level than yeah. than the force awakens was I yeah think. uh Anyway, we should move on. Okay. Maybe I'm going to watch all those Harry Potter movies again. You should do it. Maybe yeah. I'll do it for New Year's Eve. 
it's my New Year's Eve tradition is uh, new pizza and old movies. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, they, these aren't that old, but I don't know. I could do it. Uh, all right, let's move on to number uh, or our eighth. I don't know. I don't need to say the numbers. The numbers are yeah. just for me to make marks when I edit these <laughs> in later. Oh yeah, we're not listening to these while you guys are uh, yeah. behind the curtain. Uh, here's a, uh, we're back to Spielberg and uh, a movie that I think the score is the best part of uh, 2004's The Terminal.
I think this is a criminally underrated Spielberg film. Now, that's not to say that it's like a major work from him, but even as a, a minor Spielberg work goes, I think you know, it's better than a lot of other people's entire careers. Uh, I think there's just, it's, it's a small film, and yet it was made in a big way. And maybe that, because it was made in a big way, people were expecting something to be, they're expecting it to be bigger than it was. But it's ultimately, it's a small tale that's told in this enormous environment. You know, this guy who's just stuck in an airport for, I don't even know how long. It was based on a guy who was stuck in an airport for a couple of years, I think. Hmm. Um, but it's another really great Tom Hanks performance. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I think he's great. I think Catherine Sata Jones is great. I think that uh, uh, the other guy, what's his name? Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting old and I'm forgetting everything, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Stanley Tucci is just magnificent. And everybody in the movie, I think, is, is 100% solid. And it's just, it's a sweet and a very Hollywood, old fashioned Hollywood story. And it's just, I think that the only thing that I think maybe people got weirded out by it was because it got overwhelmed really by production design. Because yeah. that's not that's not a real airport that uh-huh. was modeled on a real airport. They tried to find a real airport to shoot in because there were countries other than the United States after 9-11 that, you know, you could just hang out in an airport and it wouldn't be a big deal. But it's like for the amount of time that Spielberg needed to shoot at all these international airports were like, no, get the fuck out of here. We've got an airport <laughs> to run. So they built that set. That is a set. They built it in a giant airplane hangar in Palmdale, California, and everything in it works. Hmm. The escalators are from like a mall that like you know went bankrupt or something like that. All the you know like the Burger King is a real Burger King. The the pretzel place is a real pretzel place. The stuff that you know dispenses ice cream it really dispenses ice cream. All the toilets work. All the sinks work. It is a working functioning you know place with all these stores and shops. Everything in it is 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 there. It's there and it's real and it works. And it's just it's a triumph of production design and I think maybe it was so realistic that you know, the, the Academy didn't notice it because it didn't get nominated for an Oscar yeah. which I thought was incredibly weird um, but uh, and and also the music is also I think the, the themes that Williams comes with are suitably sort of you know small and intimate and, and light that, that suit the character that Tom Hanks is playing which is you know sort of in, in a way I think you know there's there's a sort of elements of silent film comedians Mm-hmm. And elements of of definitely an element of of Jacques Tati. I mean, the whole movie basically mm-hmm. it's it's playtime. It's playtime in an airport. Yeah, because just like Jacques Tati built Paris, mm-hmm. you know, in some fucking field somewhere outside <laughs> outside of Paris, Spielberg built this entire you know world in in an airplane hangar. It's 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 it, this is his playtime, and as a result, it's our playtime, and we can enjoy it. I think it's. Uh, I guess you don't like it. Uh, I mean, I, I've only seen it the once, and I I don't. I guess I don't hate it. It just it feels like minor Spielberg to me. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's definitely not like up there in like top ten Spielberg, but it's still it's just such a, a sweet story. There's so much going on in it that is is just very that that's funny and light and just fun. And there, there's also you know, but there's there's also this undercurrent of melancholy, which again is the thing that I think that uh, Williams' score captures effectively. Mm-hmm. Because again, you know, yeah, for all the the humor and the funny stuff that's that's going on and the the, the Pratt falls and, and and all that stuff, it is basically about a guy who can't go home. He can't go home and he can't go to the mm-hmm. place that he's visiting. And even the, the re, his reason for visiting has an undertone of, of melancholy and sadness because, you know, it's just, he's just out to fulfill, uh, you know, this goal that, that his late father you know, started years ago. And that also was kind of it, it's another thing that, that involves jazz mm-hmm. because this is the whole deal is that uh, 
Tom Hanks' character is trying to get an autograph from Benny Golson, who was like the, the last person in the, the Great Day in Harlem picture that his that huh. his his character's father wanted to get all the autographs from all those guys. And Benny Golson was the last one. And Benny Golson appears as himself in the film. And at the end of the and it's kind of it's kind of cool because I mean at this moment and I say at this moment because 2016 has been such a bitch. Who knows what's going to happen in the next eight minutes? But at this moment, <laughs> Benny Golson is one of only two people in the Great Day in Harlem picture that is still alive today. Wow. The other one is, um, oh gosh, Sonny Rollins. Oh, I remember that name. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I think um, maybe I need to readjust the way that I approach the terminal because I'm, I'm paraphrasing someone else here. Uh, I've talked about this on the show um, before, but. Um, uh, it's been said that Steven Spielberg is really good at comedy, except when he's trying to make a comededy <laughs> like and, and I find that to be true like I, th- I think I laughed more at Bridge of Spies than I did at the terminal um there's a bunch of funny stuff in Bridge of Spies actually uh and and maybe that's the reason the movie doesn't uh you know I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm overlooking all the melancholy and sadness and stuff because I'm wanting it to function better as a comedy oh well. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a comedy drama. So, yeah, the, the, but I think the elements of comedy, because comedy, I think, is more, has gets more of a robust response from audience members, I think maybe they think of it more as a comedy. I think it's, what what strikes me as interesting about the film, and I do, I really, honestly, I, I did not really think much about the score, and then in listening to this track and then listening to others, I thought like this is, there's a, there's, uh, I'll, I used the term before, but like there's a playfulness to it, but there is a, it's a, it's, it's a very everything about the score and everything about the film itself seems like why did Spielberg feel the need to make this film and him making the film obviously dictates why John Williams uh, did the score, but it just, it does. It's not that it seems beneath them. It's that there's no, there's no obvious spectacle to it. And so it's both of these guys really paring things down and trying to like focus on like this one character in a smaller film. Uh, and the score reminded me of that and it made me want to watch the film again. One thing, the, the way I think of it is it's a, it's a, it's an, not necessarily underrated, but like Tom Hanks performance is not talked about enough. When people talk about how solid an actor he is, people never talk about the terminal and he makes a very specific choice. And I, I remember a couple of critics pointed this out, but I remember thinking like, Oh yes, that's very interesting is that over the course of the film, his English gets better mm-hmm. And some of that's in the writing, but it's also just Tom Hanks, who, you know, who is an English speaker. You see him just subtly become more comfortable with what he is saying and how he is saying it. I remember thinking that was really great. And and yeah, it's a it's in listening through some of these. John Williams tends not to be the type of composer whose scores I would just listen to, like while I'm doing other things, because they they're they're often so big that it's just like, okay, well now this score is dictating what I'm doing. This one I might actually listen to in my everyday life because I feel like it would definitely add a quality to it without dictating that I should be feeling big emotions. Hmm. Well, uh, speaking of comedies, let's move on to a hilarious <laughs> Steven Spielberg movie. Um, no, this is um, one of my favorite Steven Spielberg movies of all time. Uh, 2005's Munich.
And talk about inappropriate audience behavior at a movie theater. Somebody brought a baby to Munich when I went oh, to see this movie. Jeez Louise. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> Me and my friend, we were just, we would just go on for months. We got so much mileage out of the you know, whole Munich baby running gag that we had. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember what's the most, like, least appropriate movie I've seen someone bring a baby to. I can't think, nothing like that. Uh, I remember there being a baby crying during I Am Legend. Uh, oh. <laughs> but uh, oh, I, boy. I, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, uh, but no, this, this is a magnificent film. Uh, it's definitely up there with with Spielberg's very best stuff. And yes, obviously, if you put the Terminal up against a movie like this, it's, sure, it's going to pale in comparison. But that's that's no reason not to watch the Terminal. Everybody, you should just go and see that movie. But you should see Munich too. Munich is it's a far more difficult film. Uh, the whole Israel Palestine thing which I don't think is ever going to get resolved in our lifetime. Uh, I, I still, I still can't make heads or tail of it. I've, I've never really delved very deeply into that whole conflict. And I think the main reason is because, uh, there's almost no way to get into that, that conflict and come up with any kind of, of assessment without one side or another saying that you're a terrible person. Yeah. It's, there's plenty. Uh, what I like about the film, and w- I want to be careful not to talk about just the film itself because there's so much to talk about. But like, what I like about it is that it is kind of balanced. Is that it? It seem it definitely takes a critical attitude towards what these characters are doing, and that is, you know. But it's also saying, well, let's also not forget what sparked it. You know, this horrible atrocity sparks another one um and the fact that again so many choices uh, of this film are are interesting to me the idea that this could have been shot and just made like a straightforward drama but the fact that he chooses to make it like a like a conventional thriller when it's anything but is fast is fascinating to me not even a conventional thriller i think it harkens back to those early 70s right suspense thrillers, those Mm. paranoid suspense thrillers but that he's that he's essentially invoking a genre in order to tell this story uh is amazing to me and then the the music i thought was so beautiful and as i was you know picking the the track for this one and i was doing some research one thing i had discovered but didn't know before is that the instrumentation and some of the the various like movements within the tracks were inspired by not necessarily based on but they're inspired by the israeli national anthem Mm -hmm. um which seems so appropriate to me and i think maybe this this might be like my last like the last john williams score i really liked and i think because I think he's inspi- he was inspired by Spielberg's thoughtfulness in how he made it. And I think he thought like, all right, like how can I make this different? How can I make this, uh, I don't know. How can I, how can I match the tone of this film? And yes, there are certain thriller elements, but there's also such a sadness at what has been done to the characters and then what the characters are doing. It is a sadness that's a, that is sort of dictated by the fact that the three of us are saying like, this cannot be, this probably will not be solved in our lifetime. It might never be solved. And this is just one little horrible skirmish. Plus our lifetimes all just got a bit shorter because Trump's going to, uh, instigate nuclear war and we're well, all going to be wiped out within then. two years. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's and <laughs> I guess that will. Yeah, I I, it, I I I ran over what Wes said. That will solve the problem. In a, it is a solution. Yeah, it's it's the final solution. <laughs> oh God! Uh, <laughs> but you know, but the thing is, getting back to the the question that you asked about the terminals, why is Spielberg making this film? The terminal and Munich, I think both of those films are responses to nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's and then why, War of the Worlds, same year. Yeah. And that was the other one too that I, you know, I I'd thought about you know, including something from that one, but uh, ultimately I just like the other ones better. Um, and that's that's all he's thinking about. And you know, quite rightly, you know, mm-hmm. well, why shouldn't we be thinking about that? I mean, you know, and your interjection about uh, you know our upcoming uh, you know fascist regime, you know, that's that's we're all thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And I I honestly think that whatever darkness has been permeating our meeting today is a direct result of that. And yeah, I wish it had. I happened. still feel very bad about yelling at Tyler before we recorded. That's okay. <laughs> I want you to know, Tyler, that I'm very sorry. I do not hold on to things that have said been said about me or to me. Just ask uh, my uh, an old youth sponsor named Les, uh-huh. who once said something so terrible. I've brought it up in numerous therapy uh, sessions. Just ask him. I let things go. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, we 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 all we all do that. I do that with <laughs> with film critics. It'll be like film critics that have perfectly good opinions, but there'll be like, there's one guy in particular. I'm not going to say who he is on the podcast, but like, I hated his review of uh, In the Cut from 2000, 2003 so much that now if I'm like looking at Rotten Tomatoes, I'll scroll right past his name. I'm like, fuck that guy. There, <laughs> there is a guy whose name I won't say, but. Uh, now, admittedly, people can probably figure it out because there weren't that many reviews of Entrance, but it's a movie that you and I loved yeah. and championed. And I understand if somebody doesn't like it, that's fine. But this guy's review was dismissive in a very specific way. And there's one particular parenthetical. I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> I know. I, you are, about this, so I know exactly who you're yeah, talking about. Like, this is not film criticism. This is you being a complete dick. And uh, from then on, and then. That colored every other review I read of his, and suddenly it's like, oh yeah, these are all kind of him being a dick. <laughs> well, Listeners uh, can figure that out. Wait, that was the movie with the you you had that actress on as a guest. Yeah, right? yeah, and we've had the directors on horror as well. Movie and like the final third of the movie was like one long continuous yeah. unbroken shot. And yeah, or there's a there's a hidden cut in there, but yeah, 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 I'm, yeah I'm, I, I, that's right. Uh, maybe there were two. There's, there's one because we know the directors. There's okay. one because yeah. the camera yeah, couldn't I, actually follow them through the doggy door. <laughs> I, I made it look like it did. I, I liked the movie, but see, horror has never been my favorite genre. Uh, so you know, but but I mean, I'm 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 always open to you know to to some kind of great horror movie experience. That one, yeah, I I liked it. I, but overall, I, I that whole ending thing I felt was a little show offy. The thing that I loved, though, was that actress's performance. I thought she yeah. was great in that movie. And Susie it's like, Block is her and, name. Okay, yeah. And it's like, uh, where, where is she? Why didn't this get her a shit ton of work? What, what happened yeah. there? And it did get her more work, but yeah, again, the film wasn't working. very high profile. But yeah, yeah, she worked. I mean, I follow her on Instagram. I know that she continues to work. Okay, yeah. well, that's good. But I mean, geez, it's like you know, why didn't somebody give her a TV series or something? Miss Block, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. rooting for you. <laughs> um, okay, we need to move on. But I wanted to say about Munich. Um, I feel like we're, we've we've uh, given a lot of rightfully given a lot of praise to two thousand that that decade of of Spielberg, the half I, of the decade, uh, or the yeah. half, yeah. But I feel like he also had gained this reputation, I think, uh, unfairly, of not being able to end his movies satisfactorily. And I think there's three movies people point to when they make that argument, and one of them is War of the Worlds, in which I agree. 
Um, I don't like the, the the third act of that movie. <clears throat> the other two are AI and Munich, and in those cases, I think no, that's, I think that that's on you. If you don't think those movies end strongly, you need to sit down and watch them again and think more about why they end the way they do. Because I think that it's it's it's, it's very it's very in both cases the endings strengthen the movies immeasurably. I knew people criticized the ending to AI, and I knew that people said that the ending to Munich that there was an audacity to it, but I don't think I knew anybody that said it was that it ended poorly. Hmm. Um, I've definitely heard, heard that no, or, or I've heard Munich lumped in with that because that is a blanket complaint that, that yeah, I, I've heard that a couple of times about Munich. And then of course I've heard a lot about AI, but I think, I think the AI, it's just a matter of interpretation. I think everybody feels like Spielberg went for some kind of lovey dovey feel good ending. But actually, if you look at it, it's, monstrously tragic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically the kid knows he's being lied to and mm-hmm. he just, he gratefully accepts the lie yeah. because that's, that's all there is left for him. That's just, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's move on. Our final, we're jumping ahead 10 years yeah. to just last year, a movie that's already come up on this podcast, um, on this episode. The remake. Uh, uh, <laughs> the remake. Uh, we're talking about 2015's JJ Abrams, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens.
before we get into discussion of this track, which I like quite a bit, um, I was going to, cause David mentioned there's a 10 year gap in what we are talking about. Um, were there any scores within those 10 years that you specifically thought like, Oh, that might be a good one to talk about. And you wound up dismissing, or do you feel like that was just kind of a pretty dry period? I, I there was nothing there that came to mind. Okay. No. All right. Just curious. I just went straight to the, the force awakens. <laughs> So, and there again, it's another instance where, and if you will, you guys may recall that, uh, back when this movie was first announced, uh, and they said that, that John Williams was going to come back and he was going to write the music. I, I was, I was a little perturbed by that. Mm-hmm. And you recall, I, I stated on this show that I thought that I was, I was hoping that JJ Abrams was going to bring Michael Giacchino with him because that's yeah. the guy who does the music for all his movies. And I thought that Michael Giacchino would, uh, you know, be a, a shot in the arm for the, in terms of the star Wars uh, film music. Mm-hmm. Because again, I thought that Williams's scores for the trilogy, the, the, the prequel trilogy were a little on the lackluster side. And I thought that it could use it, you know, uh, a new guy, a, a fresh take. And I thought Michael Giacchino would be good, but then they went with John Williams and it ended up being the same thing that I've said before. There's like a couple of good themes and then there's the rest the rest is to me, it was just, it was filler. And this theme was, was Ray's theme, which is what you hear in this, this beat, the bit that we played. I like it very much. And it's got the, the, the main thing that I, I'm hoping for is because it has potential really. I mean, it's the version that we hear in this film is good, but I feel like there's, there's a sort of a, a, a lightness to it. It's, I mean, I hesitate to say girly, hmm. but because the character of Ray proves that she is, you know, as the story progresses, you know, that she is not girly. Mm-hmm. But the theme, the way that it's, it's you know, in, in this particular arrangement, it feels a little too light. But there's potential there that, you know, with different orchestration, if you bring in more brass and you get heavier on the strings, it can be it has the potential to be a far more heroic and epic and noble theme for the character, which I think, and I hope is what they're leading up to because that's what the, uh, that's what the character progression should be for Ray, that eventually she should emerge as an iconic hero. Mm-hmm. An iconic hero is what the character should become. And the music should reflect that. And the thing is that so this version is a, it's a little light and I feel like it should, hopefully it should develop and get heavier and more suitably heroic as, as the story progresses, whatever it's going to turn into. And I would say the lightness is not necessarily uh, girly. I would say it's childlike. Yeah. And if you, and if you look at like her, her introduction, yes, she is doing very adult things. She's like scavenging and all that kind of thing, but there's also as adults. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's what I do with my weekends. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's there's also a shot of her sitting and like putting on a, a helmet and like a little kid would do. Yeah. And there's definitely a, a mature. Uh, she does mature over the course of the of the film. She certainly is not childlike. She's had a, a tough life and all that. But a lot of her issues are the issues of a younger person who, while still aware of the heaviness of things, uh isn't still isn't totally experiencing them firsthand yet and so i definitely think that there's that there is a uh, a childlike quality but i as i totally agree that like the seeds are in there so that as she becomes an adult the theme can hopefully become more adult as well and i really hope he doesn't drop it yeah i 
Well, I'm, the, the theme's got to stay with her because yeah. you know, one way or another. But I just again, I just hope that they they sort of uh, explore the possibilities within the orchestration and they can you know, just sort of beef it up. I think I, I'm I'm hoping that's what's going to happen. And then uh, just ironically, just you know, talking because I I thought Michael Giacchino would be a, you know a good call. And now with with Rogue One, I, I say ironically because originally. The, the fantastic composer, who I like a lot more, Alexander Desplat, was supposed to do the music for Rogue One. Mm-hmm. But then uh, his schedule got knocked out of whack by all the reshoots that they had to do. So he had to drop out of the project. And now you got Michael Cicchino doing a Star Wars film. And so, OK, yay for him. But I like Michael Cicchino, but I love Alexander Desplat. <laughs> I, would, I was so I was salivating at the prospect of what he was going to do with the Star I, Wars movie. Let me and say, now we don't get it. Foo. Let, let me say this. We uh, yes, that's said. We did get a great Alexander Desplat score in 2016, which is The Light Between Oceans. I don't know if you saw the movie. The score's on Spotify. Check it out. It's beautiful. Um, and the Michael Giacchino score is very good, and I think it's a nice... It's such a cliche thing to say. It's a nice passing of the torch. Like His music is a really good transition from John Williams. Like It echoes that enough, but it's distinct enough yeah. that... You know, I, I don't know if John Williams is going to do another Star Wars movie. I, I believe he is doing Episode Eight. Is he okay? All right. And that's the thing. I think maybe they're just going to like have him do like those canonical episodes as long yeah. as he is around. Because again, he is in his early eighties now, yeah. and maybe they'll get you know different people in to do all these other the, uh, you know ancillary stories, like the Han yeah. Solo movies. That, that I did, you know they're going to turn that into a, its own separate franchise, and yeah, you know. Maybe um, they can get display in on, on that. Or maybe they'll get like Aerosmith or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out, you talked, there is this 10 year gap between Munich and, uh, and, and episode seven uh, on our list here. But um, part of that is that John Williams became much less active in that time. If you look mm-hmm. at, so 2005, he did four scores in 2005. And Mars what's that? And seven years ago. He uh, did do the score to Lincoln, I assume. Um, yeah. <laughs> that was a good one. Uh, hold on. Memoirs of a Geisha, Revenge of the Sith, Munich, and War of the Worlds. Between War of the Worlds and Episode 7, he only did five scores in that entire oh, wow. ten years, which is Indiana Jones and the people doing the stuff. Right. Uh, as you said. Uh, Adventures of Tintin, War Horse, Lincoln, and The Book Thief. Uh, and then the next one up is is Force Awakens. I yeah. heard good stuff about The Book Thief score, actually. But okay. is I, I don't even remember the movie. movie. I didn't see it. Um, I don't. Even but yeah, in all those all those Spielberg films, I mean, again, there's there's good stuff in there, but I didn't find anything like super extraordinary. I loved Lincoln. I just watched it again a couple of days ago, just to make sure whether or not I wanted to include something from it. Uh, I watched it earlier this week. Uh, great movie, fantastic performances by uh, Daniel Day Lewis and Sally Field and Tommy Lee Jones and James Spader. Yeah, James Spader Spader is really good too. There's, there's there's a lot of little supporting roles in there. His is definitely the best one of those. Um, but yeah, the, the music didn't didn't strike me as uh, as being extraordinary. So there's a lot of stuff in that film that didn't strike me as extraordinary. The script is solid. The performances are great, of course. Um, but I remember thinking like, that's one when I think about uh, Spielberg films of the last you know twenty years. Now there are some more forget you know some forgettable ones, but. Oddly enough, I often remember, like, I remember Tintin more than I remember Lincoln. And I think it's because, like, I don't think of it, I don't see a lot of his hallmarks in there. Like, I don't see, uh, visually, I don't see a lot of Spielberg in there. Uh, oh, well, no, I, I, I do. Well, actually, I see, well, no, actually, I guess, you know, correction, I, I, I see a lot of Janice Kaminsky in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, 
just giant shafts of light pouring out from seemingly nowhere. That's, <laughs> that's, that's him. That's him all over. Um, what is, uh, does it say in his filmography, like what he's doing next? Well, IMDb is always like sort of guesswork when it right. comes to like upcoming. Uh, so there's things that are like announced, which we don't know. Uh, so they, yeah, there's the next two, um, Star Wars oh, okay. eight and nine are both uh, listed on upcoming projects. Yeah. Uh, also, Ready Player One and Indiana Jones Five, uh, and then something called um, Oh, this is another um, Spielberg: The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara. I don't know about this, but it's another potential. Uh, yeah, this Spielberg. Is the, this is the first I've heard of it, but uh, uh, but it's got a, 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 according to this thing. Again, I mean, to be for movies that like are still in pre-production or whatever is all guesswork and rumors. Yes, yeah, that's uh, on the board. I mean, I know Spielberg probably still has Robopocalypse on the boards. But right. I mean, yeah. that's not, not nobody's moving forward with that at the moment. But um, I will say this kidnapping of Edgardo Martera apparently has Mark Rylance attached as Pope Pius the Ninth. Wow. Oh, wow. That sounds fun. And Oscar Isaac. Um, so as, we should. As Pope Pius the Tenth. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we should wrap up uh, yeah. and not merely wrap up the episode, but our whole series, um, about, okay. uh, John Williams. Um, this was for me and, uh, you know, Wes will give you the, uh, the last word as our resident musicologist. But for me, this was remarkably instructive. Um, especially like seeing where John Williams came from and how much that might still influence who he is as a composer. Um, and I think this, uh, this episode has, I think made me realize that he's somebody who I don't think this is always the case. Cause I think his scores will sometimes elevate lesser movies, um, like jaws two, for example. Um, but I think when it comes to somebody like Spielberg, I think as in like when Spielberg is inspired, I think it's more likely, not a hundred percent, but I think it's more likely that John Williams will be exp- will be inspired. Sure. I mean, the movies that we're talking about are the best movies that Spielberg has done in the last, you know, uh, sixteen years. Yeah, and they're some of the best scores that that he's put out in the last sixteen years. And I don't think that's an accident. And so, I feel bad that we're being negative about uh, about John Williams. Um, I think he's going to be okay. Uh, as far as his legacy, I don't think this episode's going to tarnish it that much. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, this was very, this was very helpful for me to, to talk about his career this in depth. Uh, now my question now I, okay. So Philip Glass is your favorite composer. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, yes. My favorite, my favorite living composer. And so your thoughts on John Williams in general as a composer, and you can talk about past, present, and future, uh, whatever you want to do. Well, he's definitely one of the greats. And it just, you know, the fact that I haven't thought as highly of his, his later years does not diminish the greatness of his earlier years. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's contributed probably more to uh, the, the, the art of film music than any composer alive today. You know, there's, there's really nobody else out there who, who's, uh, you know, has quite that stature because, you know, you know, Jerry Goldsmith is gone. Bernard Herrmann is long gone. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, it's it, he's one of the, the last of those guys who has actually had anything to do with the, the, the old studio system. I mean, everybody else is, you know, and Alex North is another one who's uh, no longer with us. You know, a lot of those guys, they're 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 just not not here. And in a way, Williams is our last link to that classic Hollywood era. 
And unfortunately, like I said, he's in his early 80s. He's not going to be you know, with us uh, much longer either. I mean, hopefully he'll, he'll still hang in there as long as he can. Um, but I, I really hope that, you know, I'm glad that you wanted to, to do it the way that we did this, where there's like three episodes, because there's just there's so much going on there over the course of his career, over the course of decades, like 50 years or so, that you know, to, to try and, and compress everything that, that's great about him into one episode would have been a shame. There would, there would have been too many things that would, it would end up getting excluded. Um and particularly in terms of his his early stuff, you know, we got to play, you know, some of the the, the out now jazz things, and we got mm-hmm. to play the pop song that, that the turtles performed, which you know that all that stuff would have fallen by the wayside if we had sure. ended up doing one episode. Yeah. And and I really thought that that particularly like those things were important to to give everybody an idea of not not just his roots, but also in terms of his versatility. Because, like, you know, you were saying you know, with uh, with Catch Me If You Can, he was like, hey, this is a big surprise. Well, it's not a big surprise if you go back and you look mm-hmm. at all of the stuff that he's done and where he came from. Uh, it, it's that's That was the thing that I was really glad about, that, uh, you know, we really got to stretch out with these John Williams episodes and give everybody, you know, a more thorough uh, grounding in how good he is as, as a composer. And how how great his contribution, not just to American cinema, but to the cinema period has been over these these past few decades. And pretty much every composer that you can think of is working today has been inspired by him to some degree or another. It might maybe even to the degree that they decided to become composers because they heard an early theme of his. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'll say just at the end of this series that this was a total blast, and uh, I'm actually kind of sad that this is the last one of these we're going to do, but this will be the last time we have West on, and if West can think of anyone else who deserves multi-part treatment, I'm 100% open to that, because like I said, this was a a lot of fun um, uh, to do over this uh, period of uh, 41 weeks. Um, That's some good math. (laughs) I had an hour and 22 minutes or however long this episode actually is for you, the listener, because it's an hour and 22 minutes without music. Um, It'll be about two hours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So um, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. That's where you can find uh, the past John Williams episodes and all of our episodes and all of our reviews, including my review of Rogue One and probably some other uh, John Williams movies that were reviewed over over the years. Um, It's also where you can find Musical Notation, uh, um, West's uh, podcast that is fantastic. Um, You can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com you can follow me david on twitter at davy pretension and you can follow tyler on twitter at tyler pretension uh anything any news at more than one lesson or is this too close since we recorded the last episode for you to have any news uh no we uh we do have we our latest full episode is me talking about the uh, the subject of my uh, my paper that I wrote this quarter, in which uh, talking about Christian social drama as an emerging genre. Uh, but then the the latest minisode is about the 1957 best picture, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Cool. Uh, my other podcast, I know I say this every week is on hiatus, but there has been movement this week on my part in, in getting it set up, uh, to, to, um, exist in a new format, uh, in the new year. So again, if you, uh, like I said last week, um, uh, if you are interested in, uh, making a logo for us, that would be, uh, fine by me. Uh, it's called, Hey, watch this. It used to be called, Hey, watch this with Paul and David, but, uh, Paul, um, lives in Arizona and is, uh, therefore dead to us now. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that's us. West, where can people find you on the internet other than battleshipretention.com? 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony, and you can follow my show at Notation Pod. And uh, that's yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, the, the you know, well, I think I'm I think I'm on Facebook somewhere, but I'm not still not enthusiastic about that. And uh, my podcast is uh, still going. We're I'm wrapping up my first year with uh, you know, I've been doing Christmas episodes. Mm-hmm. So, or, you know, Christmas themed movie episodes. So I'm, I'm wrapping that up with a full episode on Ben-Hur, which I uh, consider to be the greatest, single greatest film score of all time. So I'm devoting a lot of uh, space to that one. Oh, see, now I'm bummed that doesn't get to be a Battleship Retention episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely check out uh, Musical Notation. As I said, it's better than Battleship Retention. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 